This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanol, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Peers, and welcome back to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Today's guest, Niara Valerio, is an edtech entrepreneur and co-founder of Learnaby, an online platform that brings personalized learning to high-risk students in underserved areas of the US. In two short years, Learnaby has earned over six figures in sales and led Niara to be recognized on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. It all came together in the end, but only because it fell apart. With wisdom and frankness, Niara shares her early financial and mental hardships, understanding the why behind our commitments and the cracks in the US school system. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, welcome Niara. Niara, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So, you know, you and I recently connected on LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all of the amazing work you're doing and business and ed tech, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. Amazing. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Niara Valerio. I am one of the co-founders of Larnaby. Uh, we are an ed tech startup based here in New York City. And what we do is we're building a platform. It's essentially a video platform. The best way that I would describe it would be sort of like a learning TikTok uh, for high-risk, chronically absent students throughout the United States. Um, The platform is really designed to help these students get back into their work, to be able to have access to all different kinds of academics from students all across the U.S. So it's this really fantastic way to leverage mobile phones and to leverage technology to give academic access to students who've traditionally been very underserved. So I'm very excited about it. We've been doing this now for, I think it's going on four years. Yeah, four years now almost. So it's, it's been a while. <laughs> I love that. Oh my goodness. And, you know, when I looked into the business and, and all the cool stuff that you're doing, I was like, I just can't, yeah, I can't wait to unpack it with you here. 
But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yes. So I, uh, I moved a lot as a kid. I basically, I, I counted once and I'm pretty sure I attended 13 schools in a span of 10 years because I moved so much. But I'm originally wow. from Maputo, Mozambique. Uh, my mom is Mozambican. My, my father is Timorese. So it's all these different Portuguese speaking countries. But I lived in Mozambique until I was about four years old. After that, I lived in South Africa until I was about 13. 12. And then I moved to New York and I've been there until fairly recently. But I would say that I think, to be honest, moving is something that moving so much as a kid, now that I'm older, I look back on it and I realize it really made me very comfortable with change, with being very, very independent. You know, I I think it, for many people, they hear that someone goes to 13 schools in 10 years and it sounds really destabilizing. I'm like, oh my gosh. But I, I feel like it was actually a really great asset because I feel so comfortable in any sort of new environment and it's very easy for me to adapt. Um, I always had to make new friends and meet new people. So I'm very comfortable doing that. So I feel like it's it's actually been such a great asset um, in, in terms of my upbringing. Wow. You know, I just, when you say that, I'm like, I can't even imagine, you know, I went to one school for 13 years. So, you know, someone like me, I'm like, that's incredible. Um, and I find that, yeah, I love asking that question because I think it, it totally does translate into how you show up today. It, it's no surprise now that, you know, you were able to start a company and navigate the challenges to do with that. You know, I think if we if we take us back to, you know, Niara, the early years, you know, what was that time like? You know, even though now you can look back and go, you know, I learned so much and it was so great. How, how did you even navigate that? What was it like moving countries? You know, how, I guess, how did that affect what you did day to day? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, I mean, as a kid, when you're in it, you obviously don't I wasn't in my head thinking, oh my gosh, I moved so much. I mean, it just became such a normal part of the process and very natural. Um, I, I think one of the things is I was always so... I always knew at some point that things were not going to be very... I was not going to be there for a long time. I knew that things were going to be temporary. So there was a sense of, you know, if I'm in a school and I don't really like it, it's fine because I'm probably not going to be here <laughs> next year. Uh, so I think that there was the sense of you know, like just, just sort of being uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, being comfortable with being uncomfortable rather. Um, and I think that that was, uh, it wasn't always easy. I'll admit, I mean, there were definitely challenges. you you know, you have to make new friends all the time and that's always really hard, but you go to this new place and there are so many new opportunities too, that that's really exciting. So I think it's a good balance between the two. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I always had to constantly make new friends and, I feel like another thing that I, now that I'm older and I'm realizing, I feel like I missed out on like schooling wise, it changed so much. So I I feel like there's probably some things that I'm missing in terms of academics that I maybe was moving and in transition. So that's, that's kind of odd. I find it just so interesting. I think, you know, just from what I've learned from you so far and what I've learned about you, you just seem so positive and just, you know, you always are looking at the bright, kind of the bright side of things. You know, so many of us could go, oh my goodness, it was so bad. You know, I had to keep moving and I didn't have friends, you know, and you just see, seem so the opposite. 
where do you think that positivity comes from for you? And how can we cultivate that for ourselves? Is it something that we can create for ourselves? I will say, I don't know that I was always this positive. I don't know that I was a kid that I had that person, you know, that I realized I was doing things that way. Um, But I mean, I think maybe I would even say just in the last, to be honest, I think maybe some of that positivity has really so much of it been, I always consider myself to be a fairly positive person, but I think in the last year, given everything that has really happened with COVID, it's just maybe my perspective and I think many people's perspectives have completely changed in the sense that the things that I value and that I find to be important and that ultimately really matter at the end of the day have come into such sharp focus. And so for me, that's sort of what I decided to focus on. And, you know, and that's my family, my, my friends, my relationship, like those are the things that really matter to me at the end of the day. And I think everything else is feel somewhat transient, I think. And I I think even as an entrepreneur, you have moments where things are going super well and that's really great, but then that can also really go away and you have these highs and lows. And I think just figuring out a way to ride them out is just really important. And knowing that even if a situation is really bad, it's probably not going to be like that a couple of months from now. So that's, that you know, definitely gives you a little bit of faith, but it's, it's difficult. And I mean, this year has been so challenging for so many people that I, I mean, it's very difficult to be positive in this environment, but um, I think focusing on the things that really matter helps me at least. How can we get better at focusing on the things that matter? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, I would say, even when we were starting Learnaby, there were so many ups and downs in the business. We, you've had, you know, we've had really amazing moments and I'm sure we still will. I mean, we're, I would consider ourselves to be fairly young, um, but there were so many like really high highs and really low lows. And we were so involved in the business. I certainly was. I felt so much of my identity up until, I mean, maybe right before I entered grad school and even, you know, while I was creating Learnaby had been shaped around this idea of like, I had this identity of, you know, being an entrepreneur or I was very academically focused, whatever the case might be. And then when those things weren't working out in the way that I thought they would, I would just feel so low. And like, you know, you you sort of lose your sense of self a little bit because you're so attached to these things, right. That, that really might go away at any single point. And so it, the, I mean, the highs that we experienced with Larnaby, I was like, I have to separate myself from this because if I mm-hmm. attach my self-worth to being at the top and then when I get to the bottom, I am just going to feel awful. So I, I really had to figure out a way to separate that and just really see the business as something that I really, really love and really, really enjoy doing, but that ultimately I am Niara and you know what I do is very different from who I am, I think. so. But I think that takes time. Um, and it's certainly something that I, I still work on to this day. I feel like it's very natural to, you know, really love your job so much and and to sort of shape your identity around that. But I do think you run a risk of it, you know, being sort of a little dangerous when, when that doesn't go according to plan. I just love how you brought that up. I think, you know, it's something that, uh, 
ambitious hashtag high achievers, whatever you want to call it, struggle with, you know, and I think we we don't, it's so tough for us to separate what we're actually creating and putting out there into the world, whether it be at a job or whether it be our own company um, versus, you know, who we actually are, you know, I, and I'm, I'm not surprised either. I mean, you, you, you've done so much, you know, you were at Harvard, you did economics and a minor in government. Then you went to Columbia, a master's in public administration. Like, wow, you know, you were probably, you know, you're, you've achieved so much at such a year, early age. And then diving into a business where, as you mentioned, like there are, it's just, especially the first couple of years, quite unstable. There's lots of highs, but also lots of lows, you know. For those of us who have that attachment, and this is myself included still, and I'm, I struggle with this, you know, who have that attachment to labels or um, position titles or whatever it may be. How can we, you know, how can we unattach ourselves? How can we get better at just letting them go and actually figuring out who we actually are? Yeah. I feel like that is so difficult to do unless you've had it all taken away from you, which is yeah. something that I would hate. I mean, you never want that to happen to anybody, right? I mean, who, in order for you to learn this lesson, you have to have it all go away. And it's really unfortunate that I think so many things operate in that way. But I think that's really what happened for me. And I, I wonder if I would have come to this point had I not experienced all those losses in such a big way. Um, but I think even so, there probably are moments in our lives where maybe it's not attachment to a business or, you know, attachment to something large in that, in that sense that we've had attachment to. And, you know, I think maybe on a smaller scale, we can think through ways that like our identity is very separate from that attachment. But, but I, I, I think it's really hard. Right. Um, and, and I, I feel like it's hard for me to say, because I literally, the only way that I went through this was when I was we were starting learn to be. And I mean, I was just at such a difficult point financially because of the business and it was just so, so challenging. And that like really transformed my thinking and the way that I was approaching things. So, but I think there's probably ways to do that outside of it though. Um, yeah. It's like, who, who would you be if all of this went away tomorrow? You know, like, mm. what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's gonna happen. Yes. I mean, I hope it does. And, right? Like, please know it's. And you're just so right. And I think, I mean, I, and I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the dark side of business. We talk a lot about that on the show, but you know, it's so many of us we we go into starting businesses or wanting to be in a hashtag entrepreneur, and and little do we know, you know, kind of what's involved in it in the back end and the financial side and what that actually means for you to you know, have to invest in a company when you're just kind of young and, and you're just finished college or, you know, you don't have much and you've also got to support yourself. You know, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the, the experience with the financial hardship? And I think that just shapes people to another, I mean, it shaped me to an, another degree, you know, you do, it's almost like you don't even know how important that is until you have to go through a really tough time. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how you navigated that those early days of learning? Yeah, so we 
we didn't, I mean, we, we had these contracts, we had grown pretty substantially and we were given these really large contracts, which was great, but we didn't get paid for nine months because the Department of Education just takes a very long time to pay their vendors. So it was nine months of essentially working for free. Um, during that time, we were also full-time grad students and working full-time and doing the business. And there was absolutely no chance or opportunity for me to get a part-time job. I mean, there, there was just no, no, like, literally physically no time. I was, we were working weekends at the school. I mean, we were, we were just, everything was just very, very chaotic. Um, so I was, yeah, I was, I mean, I was at some point I ended up like, you know, sleeping on couches, friends, couches. I was, I was very lucky to have friends who were willing to take me in and were like, you know, you stay as long as you need to. They, you know, like fed me and everything. Me and my little dog, I, I have a dog. So <laughs> I was living on couches, my friend's couches for a while. Um, but, I, but I have to say that to me, honestly, was the thing that got me through those times because I felt like I was in such a difficult situation where I was having such a hard time supporting myself. And I had all these incredible people around me who were like, don't even worry about it. You can come and stay. 2 a.m., stay as long as you need. Bring your suitcase, bring your dog. It doesn't matter. So that was honestly the one thing that got me through it. And I think even when things were really, really tough, I could really appreciate and be very grateful to have had these people in my life. And I feel like that was so tremendous. I mean, my, my friends were just wonderful and so supportive in every single way. And I feel like that was the one thing that really got me through it, to be honest. I love that. You know, how can we... I think the question that comes to mind here is like, you know, if we've started, made this commitment to start this business at the time you were still studying, you were trying to figure it all out, you, you know, financially, you were just like, I don't even know how I'm going to handle this. Why continue the company? You know, I think so many of us think, you know, oh my goodness, if I just start this business, then, you know, it's all going to be glorious. And there is a period of about a year to two, for me, for two years of like, how am I going to eat? Like, (laughs) you know, what am I going to do? And, you know, why do we keep going and how can we get better at, at actually figuring out our why in this situation? Yeah, I think, I mean, for so many people, I think that there is a larger purpose or calling or reason why you're committed to this. Um, and I have to say that reason has to 100% be more about just making money because if that's mm-hmm. your goal, um, I I think it becomes very, very difficult to sort of go through those difficult times. And, and I think having that purpose and that mission is so huge because ultimately that's what you're sort of waking up to do every single day. You really believe in this idea and you want more than anything to make this come to life. Um, But I also recognize that we were in a very privileged position. We were grad students at Columbia University. I, you know, I mean, I knew that if the business didn't work out, I would have my grad school degree to fall back on. My co-founder was the same. So I, I mean, even though we took these risks and financially it was very, very difficult and challenging, I did feel I had sort of you know, a baseline or something to fall back on, which made us a a lot luckier in many senses. Um, But even during those challenging times, it was like, why are we doing this? But then we'd go and we'd talk to the students. And, you know, I talked to Rahel, my co-founder, and it was just, we were just loved what we were doing so much. And there was such a belief in that we could really, really 
change the way that these kids were accessing technology, the way that they were accessing um, academic content, right? Like all these things we knew that we could do it. So I think that's what ultimately kept us going. And, and you have to have that because when things get really, really tough, um, there has to be something that you're pointing to and saying, well, this is the reason why I'm doing this. And I also think it guides a lot of your decision-making process too, because if you're only focused about on making money, for example, your business is going to be swayed by those decisions where when you're faced with a decision, you know, whether if it's something to pursue your mission or your vision and the trade-off might be, you know, not to make as much money or the other way around and you pursue the route to that will make you a lot of money, you may abandon your vision. And then what is the point of even doing what you're doing anymore? Right. So there has to be this sort of like Northern star that you're following at all times, um, a purpose, a mission, a vision that again, I, I think has to be about way more than just being wealthy and making money for me personally, at least. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I think, yeah, it's just so, so important. Amazing. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the idea for Learner B, how it came about and those first few steps. So now we know the context, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy first eight months or probably year, but you know, how did the idea come about and yeah, what, what did you do to kind of get it off the ground? Yeah. So I had uh, been tutoring SAT classes in the South Bronx for a while a little bit before we started Learnaby, and there was this, what I felt, um, many of the surface providers that were working with the students were really not understanding the students or understood how to work with them, or most of the time even looked like the students or had the experience or the background or the knowledge. Um, and so there was this very cookie cutter approach to working with these students who I'll add a lot of them were considered chronically absent, meaning that they were missing 10% or more of classes within any given year. They were at risk of not graduating high school. They were very far, far behind. But the solutions that were ge- being given were, let's bring in these providers who will just, you know, just do this, read this textbook, do this X, Y, Z, and you will get it done. And I really felt that that level of personalization was really missing with, from working with these kids. And that's what you need when you have students who are already struggling so much that relationship with a teacher, you know, like that, that sort of connection that you might have is so, so crucial and so important to getting kids to come back. And for you to do that, you need to be able to understand where kids are coming from, meet them at their level. And so we were like, we want to design something that is centered on students, for students, by students. And that's really where the idea for Learn to Be came from. Um, it's this idea that we're designing a product that is completely catered to Gen Z, in particular, students who are really struggling, the chronically absent students, um, students who've been traditionally underserved from ed tech, which I think is a good portion of the population because much of the ed tech design today is really focused on your middle to high achieving students. And the students who really need the most support, the ones who are at the bottom are the ones who are sort of getting left out. So it's, it really, it took us some time for us to come to this point. And Rahel, you know, and I were talking and we we're like, I mean, this we, we have to do this because we just felt like there was nothing in the market for these kids. Wow. It's, it's so, it's so incredible. I think your mission is so strong and no wonder you could get through the tough times, you know, when, when you came up with that idea, then, you know, what were the, those first few steps you, you took to actually turn it into a business? 
Yes. So we, I think, were fortunate in the sense that we had we had a, essentially an opportunity to go into a school, and that's where we built the business from. So we already had standing relationships with schools, and we saw this opportunity, and we took it. Um, whereas I think a lot of times an entrepreneur will sort of start backwards, whereas you start with an idea and then you go out to try and find your customers or your clients, whatever the case might be. We were fortunate that we had it a little bit backwards. So it was kind of like, well, there's this opportunity here. We have these relationships. Let's try and figure it out. Um, it was just the two of us. Um, we were called something completely different initially. And we were very much a service-based business, I will say. In the beginning when we started, it was more focused on tutoring slash mentoring. And the technology piece came once we started realizing how these students were using their phones, how they were leveraging social media for educational purposes, all these things that we got to understand while working with students. And so our ideas sort of developed from there because we knew that this was something that they really needed and wanted. And we were just sort of working with what they were already using, but advancing it in many ways. Mm-hmm. So interesting. You know, how do you how do you go from two people early days, you're just doing tutoring, you're trying to understand your target audience and your market to managing a team of 20, you know, within three years, three or four years, you know, how, how does that happen? You know, talk to us a little bit about the progression of the business and how you just were able to build it to kind of where it's at now. Yeah. I think that to me, you say that, and I'm also just like, I don't even know how this happened. I mean, this company grew so exponentially. We're on looking at our Slack channel. I was trying to message someone the other day and I was like, oh my gosh, I have to search through all these names to find somebody because we have more than two people on our Slack channel. It's not just Rahel and I. I mean, it was Rahel and I, we were texting, but whatever, we're using WhatsApp whatever. Um, it, it really, I mean, we've grown a lot in such a short period of time. I think what we've been very, I think the one thing that I would say that I think we've done very well is Rahel are very intentional about being very clear about our mission and our vision and who we are as founders and as individuals. And so I think being very clear about that has allowed us to bring on a really, really amazing team of people who are also very aligned with our mission and vision. And I think that has sort of grown from there. So um, it's certainly taken time, but we've been, you know, we've met some, I mean, we've had, we really wouldn't be here without the whole team. I mean, they've had such a huge, like this whole summer. I mean, I just feel tremendously fortunate and lucky to work with these incredible people. Um, And I think a lot of it is because they're just as passionate about the mission and the vision. So if you have something and you really believe in it, I think it attracts like the right sort of people um, to help you further that mission. So I, I think that's that's how we've gotten here. But it is kind of crazy to have that many people. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I tell Rahel that it, honestly, if it had, we would still be like communicating via WhatsApp, which is terrible. <laughs> We'd have like twenty people on our WhatsApp channel, be like, you know, <laughs> that's what we need to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I love it. You know, I think so many of us have peers out there listening are probably thinking, well, I've got this awesome idea or maybe they've already started and then executed on their idea and I've got this business and I just want like 20 more people to help me out. But, you know, how do you get there financially? 
What were the things you did to actually get to a point where you can hire someone full time or two people or three or four or 20? You know, what are the steps we need to take to do that? And in your belief, is there ever, how do we balance, you know, hiring someone because of, because we just want some help and we need the help and just hiring someone because we can? I think, especially when you're starting out, hiring the right people is so, so, so important because you really, I mean, you're a small team, you need all the support that you can get and you have to bring on people who are just as invested as you are as a founder. And I think that that's, that's sort of the challenge, right? Um, and I think also the reason why it's so important is because especially in the early stages of the business, so much is going to change. There's going to be so much going on that if you have high turnover, it becomes really difficult to sort of pick up and, you know, leave off. You sort of have to start that training all over again. You have to onboard somebody all over again. Um, And that's really tough when you're a founder and you're already doing a million things that I think the hiring process in itself is so challenging, finding the right person. So it's kind of like, if it takes time to find the right person, take the time to find that right person. Because I think the opposite of that is that you end up just burning a ton of energy on onboarding, having to start over, you know, perhaps bringing on someone who's not as invested, who may sometimes in a situation, I mean, if you're really unlucky, just actually do the opposite and and do work that you can't really use and you might have to start over. Um, And also resources are so limited, money is so, so limited that you have to really be very careful and very um, judicious when it comes to hiring and where you're spending your money. Um, and I think that that takes, that takes time, but it's worth it to, to go through that process. Yeah. So, so, so interesting. So I just want to, before we move along, understand the financial side. So did you guys bring on board investors? Did you get more clients? Like talk to us a little bit about yeah, so it was it was really the contracts that we've had. So we've had standing uh, partnerships. Um, so that's how we were. That's how we've been able to sustain ourselves. So since the beginning, we were, we were again very fortunate. We, we've been revenue generating from the beginning because we already had clients and we had built out those relationships. So again, it was a fortunate position to be in because many founders and many entrepreneurs start the other way around. Um, but it was really through that all the money gets reinvested into the business. Um, until we feel we're at a point where we can, you know, start expanding. But yeah. Fascinating. I love it. Amazing. Oh my goodness. Niara, it's, 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 I absolutely love this. I'm having an absolute ball, but I am conscious of the time. I've got a couple of final few questions for you. The first one is, you've kind of already answered this, but I'd be interested to know if it's something more recent, but what are some of the greatest failures you've personally had throughout this entrepreneurial journey to date? Oh my gosh. Just, I, I can think of 20. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, I will actually, I think, hmm, I'm trying to think of which one. Um, I mean, you just, you know, I feel like you're always making mistakes and learning from them, but I'm trying to think of one that really stood out. Um, you know, I guess actually recently to, to, you know, based on what I, what I sort of just said, we did have a situation at some point where we sort of needed to get something done. Um, and it it was sort of a decision between going with someone that we felt 
was really right for the position. And this was really when we were starting out very early, that was really right. But then we were also being very conscious of costs. And so we ended up sort of going with the person that was a little bit, the, the cost was a little bit lower. You know, we were like, pretty. I mean, they were both very good candidates, but the cost was a little bit lower and we ended up going down that route and it just didn't really work out, um, unfortunately. And it was very uh, challenging to sort of go back from that. And then what ended up happening is that, again, we had to go and rehire somebody to, to fix what was originally supposed to be done. And that was very much a lesson. So when I, what I just said, I do speak from experience. I'm not, <laughs> um, but it, it did happen and it was, you know, it was, it was unfortunate. Certainly we learned a lot. Um, but it, it's kind of like, I think when, when there, when it's two situations, I think two candidates that are just as great, I think ultimately, even if it's about cost, like you should go with the person that you feel is really, really right for it. And I think that that level of confidence that you have in the individual will just go such a long way. Um, and it's not going to set you back because it, it did set us back a couple of months in terms of progress, but you learn. It's okay. <laughs> Live and you learn. How can we get better at listening to our intuition so that we can actually kind of get to where we want to go? Um, I think I always ask myself if no one was going to, you know, if I like, if it was a complete vacuum and nobody was listening or paying attention to anything that I, like, what would I want to do outside of everything? Just like what internally, what is it that I really want? I always, I'm going with the decision. I'm like, oh, do I want this because it's what I, what I really believe, or am I being influenced by other things? And sometimes that's really hard to, to sort of parse out. Um, but I think for me in the past, I've certainly been in situations or even starting learn or, you know, at school where I was like, there was something that I really wanted to do, but it just terrified me. I think even starting a business, I was like, this is so scary. I can't do it. And the one thing that I've started telling myself is that if it like really terrifies me, I have to do it. Like I sort of go against it. And I'm like, there has to be a reason why I'm so terrified of this. So if it really scares me, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to do it. Um, I don't know if it's always going to work out, but I think it's, it's, I mean, there has to be a reason why, you know, it's holding you back. And sometimes it's, it's because maybe you want something so badly and you're just, you're, you're scared of wanting it that much. Um, you're scared of not getting it. You're scared of what the outcome might be. Um, and so I think the more we want something, there is a greater fear of loss associated with it, right? That it might not work out. So yeah, I mean, I think if something scares you, it's like a good, it's a good idea to ask yourself why that might be, um, and investigate that. So let's see. I don't know if it's always going <laughs> to work out. Work out. I love it. And I've also, yeah, I've also started on that train where it's like, oh my goodness, if this is not, if this is like terrifying me, like, for example, I'm, I'm, I'd love one day to run my company in New York. And that to me scares the hell out of me. You must. <laughs> but, absolutely. you know, we shall see. I mean, don't be surprised if I come knocking in a couple of years. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> New York is a really great place to be. Yes, I, <laughs> you should definitely do it. 
I love it. Amazing, Niara. Look, over the last four years in business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work amongst all of the hardship. You know, you've most notably, you've been featured in the Forbes 30 under 30 list. You know, what are three key pieces of advice that you give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Um, number one, some people are going to really, really dislike your idea and think it's literally the worst thing they've ever heard. (laughs) You're probably going to encounter someone who not only thinks it's like a bad idea, but it's like, honestly, just the worst thing that they've ever heard ever. Um, you will encounter those people. Don't listen to them really just keep it pushing. It doesn't matter. Um, that's number one. Number two, um, I think there are going to be moments where you're really going to doubt or question whether you're even the right person to do something. Um, you know, I, I feel like that, that happens a lot where it's like that imposter syndrome, I think, especially for women and women of color that, that happens all the time. You're like, Oh, I feel like I'm not supposed to be here. Um, and in those moments you have to like, you know, you have every right to be exactly where you are, you know, like it is, so key to just fully embrace it. And I know it's really, really hard, but I feel like we, you know, Rahel and I, and I think especially with something like entrepreneurship, I think especially when you're looking at like VC funding and you're looking at founders and who's getting all of the VC funding. I mean, they're not traditionally women of color. There's like all these statistics talking about how that is very, very much an area that needs additional improvement. So but you have to work through it, right? I mean, somebody has to do it. Um, we certainly want to be able to get there. So I think it's important to quiet those voices and to keep it moving anyway. And I think three, um, surround yourself with really amazing people, people who believe in you, people who believe in your vision, um, people that you can turn to when things are difficult, whether it be family or friends, um, find yourself a really great co-founder. That is key. Um, I don't know what I, where I would be without Rahel. I mean, I, you know, we're, I'm, I feel very, very lucky to have her. And so I think, you know, know that this journey, you can't, you can't do it alone. Um, and it's good to have people around you who are just as invested and just as passionate as you are. Love it. So, so valuable. Amazing. I want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Niara, for the incredible work that you're, you've done and that you're doing for really showing us, you know, and particularly us, you know, women of colour and, and just women in general as well, you know, that if we have a goal, if we have a dream or if we we have this passion, that it's okay to go after it and that we can and we should if that's what we choose to do. So for that, we really appreciate you. Amazing. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Living a life without regrets and knowing that you lived fully and that you didn't, you know, you were on this earth and you pursued everything that you wanted to pursue and you can know that even if it doesn't work out that you tried. And I feel like that is so key. Um, I think that there is so much to be said in 
following like that inner voice, even if it sounds completely irrational. And even if people just think that you're like completely out of your mind, I think that there is so much strength in living a life that is really true to who you are. Um, And then being able to get to the end of your life and be like, you know what? I was 120% myself and I did exactly what I wanted. And yeah, I mean, I feel like that's, that's a pretty great thing. I think at the end of the day, (laughs) Ah, gives me chills. Oh, Niara, you are so awesome. Thank you so much. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.